Hello, everyone watching and listening, and welcome back to the Free Radical Podcast, episode number one today. And this is your host, Swami Patmanavan, here today. I'm blessed and delighted to be in the company of a dear friend of mine, a dear bhai, a dear brother, Radhamadav Prabhu. So Radhamadav, thank you so much for, for joining. Thank you, Marat, for having me. It's a great pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I would like to, to read a few words of introduction to Radha Madhav Prabhu for those who do not know him and for those who already know him. And we can always know each other a little bit more eternally. And then we will, we will continue unfolding the topic of today's discussion. So Radha Madhav Das was born in Switzerland and has been living in India, mostly in Vrindavan, for the last 17 years. At present, he's staying in Radhakund with his wife and daughter. He has been serving in various temples and projects in Iskand and Godiamat and in a reforesting NGO in Brindavan. He has also been working as a researcher, author, teacher, and yoga tour guide, and has published a few books, including Unity and Diversity, Imlital Mahatmya, and Perfect Imperfection. He studied environmental science and did his PhD in philosophy. His website is nectarpot.com. There you can see the link for those interested in, in connecting him. We will be sharing that at the end as well. So, of course, after the official introduction, I also have my own personal introduction to him. He's a dear friend of mine. I think I met Radha Madhav Prabhu maybe in the first time I went to India, which was in 2007, so almost more than 15 years ago. And then eventually... Uh, in other moments when I went to India 2014, that I have the darshan of his Gurudev in Kolkata as well. And well, in time we, and we are continuing, of course, on the project of developing a very nice relationship. Birds of the same feather flock together. So that's how we met, basically, like-mindedness and heart-mindedness. So I'm very happy, very honored, and very hmm, inspired to have him in this first episode of the Free Radical Podcast. He has been also very... Uh, influential voice, so to say, in the making of my latest book, Radical Personalism. He has been one of different friends and devotees who did the, the peer review and who shared different uh, insights and contributions that are also part of this work. So I'm very grateful to him. So anyhow, today we are, the title of today's podcast will be Integrative Sexuality Beyond Guilt and Suppression. And this is a topic uh, related to some presentation that Radha Madhav Prabhu will be doing in a few weeks in a conference organized by the group Progressive Vaishnavism, the Facebook group Progressive Vaishnavism. And he will be talking similarly on this topic, but that talk will be a little bit more structured. And today we will have a more spontaneous type of exchange <clears throat> on the topic of integrative sexuality beyond guilt and repression. And as I mentioned to you in the first episode or inaugural episode, zero episode, I will say, of the podcast last week, the idea is that every one of these podcasts, I will be reading one section from the second part of my book, in which I include the manifesto, the revival manifesto for proactive devotion. And there you will, we will find different radicals that are different aspects of radical personalism, radical conversation, radical embodiment, radical this or that. 
because in, in my series of radical personalism, I almost um, mostly addressed the sections one and three of my book. So in this podcast series, I will address the second part of my book with the different radicals. So in connection to today's topic, the, the related radical, so to say, is called radical sexuality in my book. And I would like to share a few words of clarification for you not to be afraid and thinking that I'm proposing some types of some type of sexual anarchy or whatever. But again, radical means to the root. So in this case, sexual radical sexuality will have to do with addressing sexuality in its root, in its most essential possible uh, conception, not basically promoting some type of uh, free sexuality without any type of commitment, no responsibility. So I will read just a few lines from my book, Radical Personalism, uh, that description corresponding to radical sexuality. For those who have the book, you will find that in page 113. <clears throat> so it says like this. <clears throat> Nowadays, Gaudiya Vaishnavism is possessed with a serious case of erotophobia. We need to make peace with this reality and stop fearing sexual expression, attacking it and stigmatizing its practice and implications. We need to understand sexuality more organically, not only by establishing its purposes and boundaries, but especially by avoiding shallow denial and detrimental repression. We call this radical sexuality. So a few words from the book. And now the idea of our meeting with Radhamada Prabhu is to uh, unfold whatever wants to manifest in our conversation. So let's begin with that. Radhamada Prabhu, any ideas, any thoughts, something you would like to share as a kickstart? Thank you so much for having me, Padmanabh Maharaj. It's a pleasure to be here. And this is your first series of your free radical podcast. I'm excited about that. And I'm looking forward to a lot of interesting talks, being also part of that as the audience, as a listener. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best in this wonderful attempt of bringing people closer to a very holistic approach to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited about your book too. And I'm glad to be part of that in whichever small way I can contribute and so this is very exciting for me to see that start. And since this is the first episode, I was just thinking, um, you know, it's like a, a special topic to start a podcast with also, because it's a, it's a big taboo topic and many people are shy talking about sexuality. And it takes a lot of courage for a lot of people to show their face in public uh, talking about this, I, I figure. And so I find it interesting that it's your first podcast in this series and also because it's it's actually matching because it's it's the first rasa if you want to uh, look at the the rasa part of it it's the adi rasa you know it's mm. the, the primary the prime original rasa so to say so it, it has a lot of deep deep meaning to it and um, we all start our life's journey with sexuality it, it doesn't actually start just at the birth part but but it starts at the the union of the parents and so it's it's a creative process that that is you know part of sexuality, and so it, it all has to do with a new beginning and with creativity and the creative force. So I, I find it matching, and 
Yeah, many people think that, you know, it's something um, that's more to be like sidelined, that's not so important. But actually, if you look at it from an esoteric perspective, it's very, very essential. The sexual energy is not just, you know, one of the many chakras, the lower chakras how people sometimes refer to it. Mm. But it's something very, very essential that goes very, very deep on an esoteric level. So, yeah, I just thought to start the talk with, with this, you know, mm. remembrance that that is something very essential if you allow yourself to, to look at that in this perspective. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And, and just a brief clarification, to be honest, brief clarification to you and to all the audience. And to be honest, I never like kind of did some planned strategy of, okay, the first episode will be about the, the highest tabooest possible topic in the world. And <laughs> so we can get the more impact and the more followers. <laughs> it didn't came like that. It was just like very organically, like I thought of you to invite you because you were quite involved in my book and, 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 convert, and parallel you were writing this article that uh, you wrote a few days ago and you were, you were going to give this lecture in the Progressive Vaishnavism Conference. So it kind of came naturally, okay, let's talk about that particular topic. Uh, and I totally agree with you that it's such a, a crucial aspect. And some people, some of you may be shocked that, that the sannyasi is streaming a lecture on that topic. <laughs> but as you mentioned, I agree that, that this is a very powerful creative force that whether we are monks or not, I mean, all of us have to first of all, honor that because without sexuality, neither of us will be today here doing this podcast, hearing it <laughs> to begin with in a deeper esoteric level, as you mentioned, and as we will maybe continue talking, Adiras or the first original uh, interaction, so to say, is, is so crucial, especially for us as in our tradition, Gaudiya Vaishnavas. And, uh, and in so many ways in between that, you know, from, from our very birth to the highest dignity of Rasa, we will see how sexuality is something that I will say should be normalized instead of, of traumatized. And sometimes, not only in our tradition, but in, in, other tra in different traditions, these many things that should be normalized end up being traumatized. And I think sexuality is probably in the top five of those. So it, they, that deserves a special treatment, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I just wanted to mention also before we start getting into certain partic uh, particular topics that this is a very, very complex topic and it actually requires that we look into many other related topics in detail otherwise there can be so much misunderstandings and confusions so I also decided I didn't share this with you because I just uh, did this yesterday uh, I decided to start a page where in the future we can share more content on this topic so people can go there and uh, it's very easy to, to remember the, the link uh, it's uh, nectarpot.com slash eros you know okay so maybe we can also write it down in, in the end because a lot of things that need to be discussed in this relation you know may not be able to we may, we may not be able to talk about so many things in this one or two podcasts that we mentioned so exactly yeah okay that's the link Okay. So just for anyone who wants to little you know, go deeper or have some more related understandings, then you know you can check out this link. Okay. Because um, yeah, there's not just the taboo about this, so it doesn't really get discussed a lot, but also it, it links to so many 
related topics. For example, uh, we are taking a stance now that's out of the box, you know. So, for example, you know, like, how can we even allow ourselves to be out of the box here? You know, what is our stance there? And how do we relate to that in a way that can be harmonized with our Gaudi Vaishnava philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things that can or should be discussed. And before we go deeper, I just wanted to say that I do not have the opinion that everyone should, you know, agree with me on this topic. It's my personal choice and it's the choice of the community of Eros friendly friends that I have and that I discuss this topic with. So I do not want to, you know, disappoint anyone or, or, or hurt anyone or attack anyone, including especially my seniors. You know, this is my personal choice. And I'm not saying that what others are doing is completely wrong or it doesn't work that way at all. I, I know that bhakti is perfectly independent of any material consideration. And in theory, you could, you know, practice bhakti under extremely traumatic and terrible conditions. Mm. You could reach the highest platform of devotion. So it really doesn't depend on all these details. And so we could just, in a sense, go on as we are, you know, read, as we are already going on. But the chances are, are much less, of course, if you have a very bad external condition. And, and so we should try to improve that condition wherever it makes sense. And here, I really feel it does make a lot of sense to make adjustments because there's been so much trauma going on in, in, in this regard of especially suppressing, suppressing sexuality, both in, in, in the Grihastha ashram as well as in the Brahmachari ashram. You know, I, I've been a Brahmachari for 17 years and a Grihastha for, for three years now. So I've seen in, in both the ashrams, there is a lot of not just artificial suppression, but there's a lot of taboo and stigma and people are really struggling a lot with, with all these energies coming up. And so, yes, uh, Bhakti is independent of that. We have seen a lot of, you know, pure devotees coming up throughout the last few generations. So I'm not saying it doesn't work at all. Yes, it, it works for some lucky people, you know, but for, for, for a lot of people, it's been a real struggle when we talk about, you know, sexuality. And so definitely, there needs to be um, at least uh, a, a more, um, you know, a, a, an easier approach for devotees. Mm. So for, for those people who cannot really imagine what, what we're talking about when we talk about the consequences of artificial re repression, of course, also, Gita in, you know, in the, in the Gita, Krishna says that we shouldn't be doing false renunciation or artificial renunciation. So that's actually also our idea. Mm. And it's not something something new for us. It's not that I'm saying that we should be doing artificial, uh, you know, suppression according to our philosophy, no. But in practice, it's it's mostly what's, what's happening. So I have a friend uh, and once he went to a healer and he asked him about the Hare Krishnas in general, you know, what is his opinion of the Hare Krishnas? And he said, oh, they're wonderful people. I, I love them a lot. And they have a lot of good energy in but, general, but 
especially about <laughs> especially on these points here you mentioned this point and this point and this point and then he says oh okay we apply the names of god on these places every day when we apply tila and 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 then but he didn't go on and then my friend was insisting so but can you tell something else maybe that's not so nice compared to others we say yes <laughs> there's a lot of repression in the aura of most devotees and he can see that here you know in the in the back of the neck and around you know the genitals this area the, the sexual chakras so it's something that people who have access to seeing energy can actually witness in mm. practice and and he, he sees that with many many devotees that he meets right so you know we, we don't have a radar for that but people do perceive that and uh, also people who are a little bit more sensitive in terms of psychology hmm. they know what's going on like i've been i've been uh, told that by many people uh when when they first meet me and and they say oh the Hare krishnas and uh, immediately they add that you know you guys have an issue with sexuality and i know that and and i'm not attacking you for for that but you know i'm just sharing all this because many people are aware of it mm. and simply because it's it's a taboo it's not discussed a lot but it's it's a big topic mm. yeah it's yeah. important that that we at least discuss it yeah and uh, yeah so the the universality of bhakti and the power of bhakti is such that mm. it it doesn't matter whether we are able to solve all these issues but it makes the bhakti process much much easier if we do yeah 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 i appreciate that your initial clarification because i mean one one important aspect in any presentation is trying to be preemptive and address like our chairs have done with purva paksha whatever possible arguments may come and not not to trying to defeat other people but just to consider other opinions not even in terms of let's defeat them so i appreciate that you started with these few points of acknowledging first the complexity of the topic and not just being naive enough to think, okay, after this podcast, everything is solved, everything is clarified, but it's just an attempt to continue with the conversation, basically. Like I said in my own book, my own book is not, <clears throat> it's not attempt to any type of closure, but mostly disclosure and an openness for dialogue and naming and framing situations that throughout history, and again, not only Gaudiya history, but throughout the history of different religions have been pushed under the rock, so to say. And, <clears throat> and I also appreciate what you mentioned, Radhamada, that this is your opinion, and there is place for having one's own opinion in bhakti as well. It's not just that there's only one universal formula-like opinion that everyone should submit to, but there is place for personalism, individuality, if not, we'll end up in impersonalism. In the context of revelation, and that you are open to, yeah, to agree to disagree, even if we may not agree in some things, even between us two, or to speak other people. The challenge is to still love each other despite disagreements. It's a big one. And I also appreciate what you mentioned about the point of, okay, yeah, Bakhtin theory is independent, and, and you can chant and be happy, as we know the, the one-liner, but who can do that? No, who can be hard as tackle? Just chant and be happy, but we need so many other things uh, to to take proper advantage of, of bhakti, and all those things can be can be bhakti as well. As Srila 
Jiva Goswami will speak about Sangha Siddha Bhakti, activities which are not inherently bhakti, but they can become bhakti by association. Like taking a shower or peeling a potato is not bhakti per se, but they can be done in the context of taking care of our sadhaka deha, our body of practitioner, and that can become bhakti. And I, I, I remember making the point some years ago that in that context, sexual activity can be can be, can be bhakti if properly engaged in, and as we will probably talk later, not necessarily limiting that exclusively to the act of procreation and, 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 and labeling what any other sexual activity to the box of uh, illicit sex or, or degradation and so on. Uh, so yeah, I totally agree that the importance of talking about issues that, as you mentioned, now many people may see, and probably we do not see, you know? <laughs> Not, we, we may not see that we are having those issues like it's usually happening. You may have certain, I don't know, certain problem with your ego and everyone else is seeing that except you. No? So, uh, so sometimes we may having as a community certain, certain issues regarding taboo topics and everyone is seeing them except for us. And, and interestingly, I've been studying something that research has shown that socially forced repression actually contributes to, to exploitation and, and manipulation, especially in religious settings. Yeah. Mm. And again, yeah. historically, we, we have seen that. Um, and, and historically, also, we have seen the problems of, of not understanding what's the problem, because someone may say, okay, we have a problem with sexuality, but the problem is not sexuality in itself, but the way we may be yeah. dealing with that. And we, if, if we don't properly identify the problem, we may be trying to solve the wrong problem. And that becomes a bigger problem even, no? because if, if, if sex is misunderstood, we are rejecting it for the wrong reasons. And, and we may be even creating a purity culture based on shame and guilt. And sometimes that, that ends up being a schizophrenic religion, to say the least. <laughs> so, so yeah, anyhow, we felt some urgency to bring this topic to the table. That's we are here today with Radha Madhav. So thanks for these introductory thoughts. and. Let's continue unfolding. I don't know if there is anything you may like to share now. Yes, thank you, Maharaj. I really appreciate that you were mentioning this Sangha uh, Siddha Bhakti. We'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. And also the urgency of the negative impacts of suppressed sexuality is, is really great. You were mentioning how, you know, the, the energy of sexuality when it um, suppressed that it that it perverts so to say and people start abusing others and we are having right now a huge problem in a lot of societies not to mention anyone in particular of sexual abuse and as devotees we all know what what this means it, it's a terrible thing and not just that it's been out in the public for 20 30 years and with little consequences the perpetrators have been continuing their penis acts for decades mm -hmm. without, you know, being removed from their position. Mm -hmm. And this really shows that there is a lot of, not just social dysfunction, but, but a lot of stigmatization and, and taboo that people are unable to break through. And of course, sexual suppression is not the only reason for sexual abuse, but it's part of them. And so if we can remove that and, and, you know, contribute to solving this through healing our toxic relationship with sexuality, that definitely is very urgent and required. 
And of course, other abuse, as you mentioned, is also part of the equation, not just sexual abuse. You know, so basically, when 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 the you know sexual energy when it comes when it corrupts, it can have so many negative impacts. There's a lot of studies about this. You can check it out by doing your own research. But you know, cancer, for example, is also one disease that is related to sexual suppression. And we do have a lot of cancer cases in our societies. So it's our our cancer rate by, by year is higher than the average. Hmm. And and also our divorce rate is, is higher than the average of um, you know material people out there. You know? mm-hmm. So that can all be, be related also to suppression of sexuality. And and of course we know that you know our our marriage life suffers from many many issues, and one of those is also suppressed sexuality. So yeah, that's something that really. Is, is part of the equation here. One, one second, someone is knocking on Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, 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 in, we're in Brindava and everything can happen, no problem. Mm-hmm. Just to make it even more real. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the call now, I can't come. Yeah. That's what I like, to make it as spontaneous as possible so Krishna himself is making the arrangements <laughs> for that to happen. So Radhamal Prabhu is in Brindava now. So everything can and will happen in Brajadam. I will continue with a few words in the basis of what he just mentioned, since it's a very important reflection, how we deal in our society, which again, this podcast is not limited to the Gaudiya Vaishnav society, although it's mostly addressing it and its situation and need to change. This is an, an extended reflection of my book, but... <clears throat> It also has application in another societies, in another groups as well. We see this pattern, this side gaze, so to say, in the contemporary world, talked about, or are happening basically, sorry, but they are not being talked about. I'm elaborating a little bit of what you just shared, Radhamadha. Okay. Thank you words. for filling in the gap. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I had to open the door for one more Brajadam ki jai. <laughs> so yeah, I totally yeah. agree that, that not only the, the situation of sexuality needs to be needs to be understood on an individual level, but also on a communal global level, we need to know how to deal with situations where sexuality is not understood by other people, and that leads to again repression, abuse, uh, taboo. And I will say that even maybe I'm jumping too much. Uh, ahead, but one of the things that come to mind in regarding to sexuality and why we may be afraid of talking about that, because also in its root, sex, sexuality has a lot to do with being naked and not only physically, <laughs> but yeah. but real sexuality has to do with nakedness and vulnerability and being totally naked and vulnerable and open to each other. And most of us escape that. Most of us escape intimacy. Of course, I'm talking as a sannyasi. It's not my field of expertise, so to say. But at the same time, as a sannyasi, I have to express my sexual energy in some way or another to keep my vows uh, intact and healthy. And that, of course, not, not necessarily in the form of phys- sexual activity per se, physical, but 
I like to, as you mentioned, also rather mild, to connect sexual activity to, and I do that in my book, to creative energy, sometimes called Kriya Shakti, sexual activity to intimacy, and sexual activity to connection. Hmm? Because real sexuality has a lot to do with these three things for me, you know, to creative, creativity, intimacy, and connection. So me, me as a monk, I need to dovetail and express those things in a proper way. Uh, one way or another. So I keep my monastic vows in place and someone who has who is in a committed relationship, that's also their duty in their own way. And it's interesting because in Sanskrit, the word Sangha has to do with this too. Sangha means sexual union and Sangha also means intimate association, what we say Sadhu Sangha. So it's, it's interesting how Sanskrit speaks about this, this same principle. But yeah, I wanted to make that point that sometimes we, even unconsciously, uh, escape from from the topic itself of sexuality because it in, in its root radical sexuality to its root it speaks a lot about intimacy and, and, and openness and rawness and, and being naked and vulnerable and, and most of us do not like to go there that's not the comfort zone so to say <laughs> but but actually that's where the real healing happens and and that's very much connected to the to the actual experience of mystical union if you really unite with God in, in, mystically, you have to be open, you have to be naked, you have to be raw, you have to be, you don't have to be anything you are not. You, you can be yourself as you are with being fully accepted. And again, we, most of us have so much unresolved trauma in that connection that, that we escape consciously and unconsciously too. Anyhow, some little feeling while the, knock, the door was knocking. <laughs> Thank you so much for filling in the gap. Uh, I really appreciate what you're saying about the relationship, especially with intimacy, because people nowadays, they have this kind of two polarized understanding of sexuality. One is the tabooized and stigmatized or hyper-moralized um, you know, vision of sexuality that most of the big world religions nowadays are, are giving to the people. And then on the other hand, on the other pole, you have the perception of sexuality in, in modern society, in postmodern society. And un unfortunately, both, they give us a, a toxic approach to, to sexuality if you look into it deeper, you know. So, of course, there's also beautiful ways of looking at it, but overall, you have these. So, there's no way to go. You know, you cannot. You cannot turn from you know the the, the hyper moralized approach to sexuality to another approach to sexuality in in the secular world because in the secular world sexuality is also misused and and uh, you know not being properly related to in a, in a healthy way so that adds to the whole equation in a sense that people don't even know what a healthy sexuality is to begin with in both ways they don't know it from you know the tradition or the, the religions and they don't know it from the non-religious approach to it so that also brings in a lot of fear and i think it's important like you were saying that really behind the sexual desire is a desire for intimacy which is a very healthy desire and sexuality is one way how to express that how to celebrate that and and so if you look at it from, from that healthy point of view, it's not really just about gratifying your, 
desire. You know, that's what we're being taught, told in, in our societies when you engage in, in sexuality. Oh, you know, you're just gratifying your, your senses or, or your sexual desires. Which but actually would, there's... Yeah, by the way, the express, the, just one detail, the, the expression sense enjoyment, in one sense, have been so much stigmatized, but I think we have to normalize that because... I mean, just breathing is sense enjoyment, basically. Just walking under the sun is sense enjoyment, and 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 you cannot just go neurotic because you are indulged. I mean, there is a healthy level of sense enjoyment that is not necessarily uh, going against your bhakti, so to say. So I think it's important to establish that gray possibility in between the black and white uh, of the purest thing and the worst possible thing. And again, by extension, the same with sexuality. We, we, we can have the noble idea of procreative sex and on the other end of the spectrum, selfish carnal exploitation. <laughs> but there should, we should be able to establish some in-between point no? in terms of human intimacy and so on. Yeah. Sorry, one detail. No, I, I do appreciate that you relate to sexuality in a connective way. And actually, it does connect to so many things. And I think it's important for us to widen our horizon that it's not just about the physical act and it's not just about sense gratification. That's, that's a very minor aspect of what sexuality really is about. And, and that's why I personally also prefer to use the term eros because it has a lot less negative notions to it that people, you know, tends to use from stereotype approach to sexuality, and it relates more to other aspects of it, including spiritual aspects. So, you know, to, to, to highlight that, I think it's important that people also realize that sexuality is all-pervading. It's not just something that you engage in physically, you know, like once a month or once a year, whatever, whatever. It's, it's really something that's all-pervading and everywhere and all the time, if you know what the energy really is all about. You, mm. We cannot live without it right now, right here. <laughs> we cannot function. It's an active energy that we all, all, you know, all depend on all the times. And, and so, for example, you know, you were talking about Sangha. You could also look at the Sanskrit term Ananga. It, it's, it's also very interesting. You know, Ananga is one of the many names of, of, um, of Cupid in Sanskrit, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it means disembodied. So another way of expressing that disembodiment means it's all pervasive. So, so eros is all pervasive. It's everywhere. And and really, if if you have a, a deeper connection to that, there's also publications about that where you can read more about this. If, if, you know, if you're not, um, you know, um, able to connect it in practice. Mm -hmm. For some, it may sound like some fantastic thing, but it isn't. There, there is published, you know, um, publications of, about that, that really sexuality is at the core of everything, which also we talked about it, Adirasa, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not just accessible to someone who has the, the highest spiritual darshan, but many people do have access to that who are, you know, not even Gaudiya Vaishnavas, they're Common people out there, I have conversations with, and I had conversations with them before I came to Krishna consciousness. And there's a lot of communities that do have a lot of wonderful, you know, healthy realizations about sexuality, all pervasive in a very, very healthy way, in a very um, non-moralizing way, and, and it's not at all detrimental. 
to your spiritual progress. Rather, it's very um, inspiring and it's very nourishing for your spiritual progress. So yeah, I just wanted to share that, you know, that people need to realize that, first of all, we are not <laughs> some just a bunch of crazy people who are trying to create a revolution here, but there's a huge community of people out there. I call them Eros-friendly people. There's also a lot of Eros-friendly Vaishnavas who are already living it in, in a very positive way, you know, in a, in a very, um, but it's just not out there in the discussion. It's really hard to access for, for many people. I myself, for example, I would have loved to have access to such a community way before that, you know, hmm. like, like 20 years ago. <laughs> but, you know, I, I hadn't, I didn't have that um, access. So I got to all these connections quite late. Hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think it's important that, that we share that, mm-hmm. how, you know, also that sexuality is not just something that happens behind locked doors. It's something that's really all, all present. It's omnipresent. And, and that's expressed in the Sanskrit term called Ananda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. A great point. And I, I was thinking about, to begin with, what yeah. you mentioned about how you will have wished to get have access to this type of conceptions in the beginning. And I was thinking, well, I, I will have wished the exact same thing. And again, I'm a sannyasi. I've been sannyasi for 14 years, brahmachari for 10 years. Almost all my life I've been practicing celibacy. So I have no problem with that. I'm just mentioning that because, for example, I saw a commentary just to clarify, for example, Madhumangal, Radhakanta, Sakyadas, Prabhu said this. There is a spiritual potency that comes with sexual austerity, which, of course, Sexual austerity may can mean many things, but even if you want to take it as celibacy per se, I, I totally agree with that, and there's a place for that. Nobody here is promoting, let's have as much sex as you can, and that's the new the new wave of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We are proposing nothing like that, but just <laughs> a healthy address to the principle of sexuality, to the principle of sexual energy, whether it is in a committed relationship and having the, the, the actual physical act, so to say, and the extension of that principle for those who are monks and for whatever the ashram, whatever the parna, uh, as I appreciate what, what you mentioned, I would have wished also to have that <clears throat> education. And with this, I'm not criticizing those who, who I met in the beginning. But I had, I acknowledge that as a brahmachari, my first years, my I mean, I, I, I really feel that I have a monastic nature but I, I could have had it in a more mature way. And in the beginning, it was more a little bit like reject, rejection-based. No, look, okay, brahmacharya, monasticism, yes, this world has to be rejected. This body has to be rejected. This type of negative orientation that sometimes comes, comes in the beginning, and which actually I think can be one of the many roots of the problem. So to say here, there's not only one problem, but sometimes we tend to, reject sexuality or, or to see it as bad or as inferior at least uh, may, we may talk about that in a few minutes i'm sure about the overemphasis of asceticism in our tradition and some historical background to that but on the base of that for many at least many practitioners in our tradition and in others as well for sure is sexuality is inferior or bad because the body the material body is inferior or bad because the material world is inferior or bad so somehow it is this sequence of, of misunderstanding that whatever is material, this world, this body, 
sex is inferior but but as you mentioned rather mother and i really appreciated that point that eros is all pervasive in connection to to the meaning of the word ananga uh, and, and i mentioned that in my book i would like to share a few words in this connection for those who think oh these guys are are, are creating their own sampradaya and, and talking about things that are have nothing to do with shastra they are not backed up by revelation but actually this this is this is clearly mentioned in shastra if you go to to the Vedanta Sutra, for example, and this is my favorite sutra, there is Loka Vatu Lila Kaivalyam, and I mentioned that in my book as well. So Loka Vatu Lila Kaivalyam means basically that the whole material creation is an overflowing of Krishna's, God's own ananda, own joy. So whatever Krishna's joy experiences in the spiritual world overflows, overflows, and starts to sprinkle in the form of material creation. So, of course, the, anang, the ananda of Krishna in, in the spiritual world mostly has to do with his, mainly with his union with Sri Radha. And in one sense, the zenith of that union is their sangha or their sexual interaction, which, of course, is a divine one. I'm not doing full comparison, but we should acknowledge that that's the zenith of Krishna's interaction with Sri Radha in one sense. So if that sexual interaction represents the zenith of God's Ananda and that God's Ananda somehow manifests this world, <laughs> we can establish this connection, very clear connection between sexuality and the DNA of, of the material creation, basically. basically, It's in the backdrop of whole creation. So I think it's an important point to, to address. Pseudo-Dionysius, one Greek philosopher, would say the same thing. Creation is an erotic outpouring, basically which is very similar to the idea of, again, the whole creation is impacted by that energy, which is in connection to the interaction between Sushirad and Krishna. So I think to establish those things will give us a, better, a less stigmatized approach and understanding to, to sexuality and to see the point that this principle is, as you mentioned, Radhamada, all pervasive. And so we need to know what to do with that all-pervasiveness that is anyhow accompanying us at every moment instead of denying it. <clears throat> yes. So also in regards to austerity that you already just talked about in terms of, you know, Brahmacharya. sorry. Can I, can I ask you something? Because you mentioned something that now Ras is asking for a little clarification for you to make that clear. There's okay. the question, what does Eros friendly mean? It can mean something different for different people. So if you would yes, like to share a view, clarify. Yeah, it's important. It's important to clarify that. Thank you for the question. So Eros friendly in our, um, you know, framework of this talk, I'm not saying that this is a universal meaning. Okay? Everyone uses that term in whichever way they, they find it makes sense. So in our talk, for, for now, for, for, for how I see it, is that you try to have an integrative approach to, to errors. And especially, um, you know, we're talking about out-of-the-box approaches to, to errors. So in the box would be what we already have um, according to our, you know, rules and regulations and how that makes sense to us in, in the traditional way. But you know, if you if you go a step further and open up the perspective to new possibilities which are out of the box, then it's easier for, for many, many people to relate to. And according to 
what I have experienced with other Eros-friendly Vaishnavas, it, it really works for many, many people. And I call them Eros-friendly in the sense that I'm not saying that others are not Eros-friendly. I'm not saying the traditional approach is totally against Eros, so don't get me wrong, but it's just to distinguish people who have opened up the, you know, practices to, to practices that are, are more integrative to, to accommodate more um, Eros-friendly approaches in the sense that it goes beyond the, the traditional approach. But of course, I, I'm very much uh, aware that people may not um, agree to all those approaches. And they may even say that that's not Eros-friendly at all because it goes against traditional whatnot, what, whatever their way of argument would be. But that's just how I use the word in, in this framework, okay? Now, if you go deeper into the, the entire topic, of course, there are many more meanings to that. <laughs> but in the, in the framework of this talk, uh, it, that's how it makes sense, you know? Again, like I said in the very beginning, um, when we, when we um, you know, polarize things, which we need to do to make sense of, of differences, then often people feel attacked. Like, oh, so you're saying that all others who are not fitting into your box of Eros-friendly people, they are not Eros-friendly. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's a very, you see the, how the whole entire, you know, um, thing is, is very delicate because people mm -hmm. can misunderstand it very, very easily. So I'm not at all saying that we figured it all out and all others are wrong. It just is a term that we use right now to... Um, make a contrast to other approaches, which in this framework is a traditional approach, you know? Yeah. So we're doing something new, something you can call it experimental or whatever. And it takes a lot of courage also. I mean, you know, obviously, especially if you do this in, in, in public, it's, it's not something that everyone's like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm gonna do that. You know, I'm gonna talk about this in, in public. So, but yeah. It's, it's that, that, that's what it means for, for this framework for now. But, you know, you can look it up on, on the internet, you know, you can, you can see what they contrast it to. And that also makes sense in, in this framework. Thank you. You were saying something before, Radamal, sorry for the interruption. Okay. I was talking about, yes, I was talking about other aspects of austerity because there was this previous question about you know spiritual i think you mentioned something about spiritual power coming from austerity if i don't you know get it wrong so mm -hmm. um austerity can be many things right or abstinence for example yes you can you can get spiritual powers from that by the way that can also be misused okay it's not that automatically that will give you progress <laughs> on, on, uh, on the Bhakti path, but you can totally misuse that also in, in very material ways. But really what austerity for us, Gaudiya, is, is about, is about service and it's about purity, right? So unless you are interested in purity, then austerity really doesn't make sense if you're just after the, you know, the, the power or whatever, other things you can use it or misuse it for. So there's different approaches to, to sexuality in terms of purity, okay? 
for my own humble understanding, abstinence is only one way of many, many ways how to engage with sexuality in a pure way. And the tradition has its own way of relating that in, in a pure way. But according to the experience of our, you know, Eros-friendly community, it's not the only way. And there's so many other ways how you can relate to sexuality in a pure way. And I really am very, very happy to say that for myself and for the entire community that it really works. It, it really, um, you know, it's not just not an obstacle. If you engage in Eros-friendly ways with, with, with sexuality, in a way that really makes sense deeper for you spiritually, but it also gives you so many insights and it gives you a lot of spiritual empowerment. And it, I know it, this may all sound crazy for people who haven't experienced this, but then again, you know, it's, it's really about the experience. And there's where, again, we have a lot of complexity and, and problems because no one talks about that in our circles. You have to really go outside of our Gaudiya Vaishnava circles to hear people talking positive about other approaches to sexuality. And by the way, that's what a lot of devotees also do because <laughs> they approach these other communities when it comes to a more holistic approach to sexuality because it doesn't exist in, in our societies, right? We don't have alternatives to our traditional approach or whatever you wanna call it, classical approach. And, and so I find personally, it's very important that people also have people to go to in, in our community, in our Gaudiya Vaishnava community, so they don't have to go outside. I'm not saying you know, other communities are, are bad, no, but really we should have you know, a, a more holistic approach to that within our own community so that devotees you know, don't feel like um, they lack that in our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that takes me to the idea of, I would like to share a comment like before. See, there are many comments coming and, and I beg forgiveness if I'm not able to introduce, include all of them, because as you can imagine, there are more than we can handle. And I don't want to totally interrupt the flow of our conversation, but I, I will be including some, maybe we will be replying to some of those later after the podcast in the different threads. So, for example, here, Brinda Sundar is mentioning in this connection, you ultimately we are ever exposed and seen completely by God, always vulnerable in that way, but somehow being seen by others, the parts and parcels of God, feels more frightening. So, being in relationships with those parts and parcels, especially in a long-term relationship like marriage, one can feel more intimidated. If they are exposed, they might be rejected. And yes, I, I, I totally agree that the, the risk, so to say, is there. I mean, we are afraid of being abused. We are afraid of being rejected. Uh, and that's why sexuality has to be built on, 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 a, on a foundation of trust and intimacy and, and real connection. I mean, the, the, the actual sexual act will be, in those cases, an expression of the intimacy and connection and trust that has already been built uh, that's ideal scenario, I would say. No? So in, in that connection also, I want to mention, since Radhamada was, was speaking about how in our society the topic sometimes is presented, and, and, and what we are talking here may sound to sound like a new thing or like an experiment, but actually at the same time, I would like to mention a few things from our own tradition to show that this is not totally absent 
from our background and this in connection to the famous uh, no illicit sex quote, so to say, <laughs> that sometimes is, is presented in some societies, at least in the Gaudia community, when we talked about the four regulative principles. And I always like to elaborate on that because sometimes we, the votes are asked, which are, to begin with, sometimes the votes are make fail. If you don't follow these four regs, you cannot be a devotee. So as you mentioned, rather mild, some, some person may have a situation with the sexual principle and, and they may feel I'm failing. So it means I cannot be a devotee. So it means I'm out of this. And, and that's not very inclusive, so to say. So I've, and, and, and also some, some even worse scenarios is like devotees may know, okay, I have to, I want to belong to this group, but I cannot, they, they may feel I cannot belong deeply. So they try to fit in, which is not as deep as belonging. And they fit in by just, okay, I cannot follow the licit sex idea that I am being presented with, but if I do not follow that, I'm not accepted. So at least I will fake that I'm following it. I will say that I'm following it while behind the curtains, most of us know that almost nobody is just having sexual activity for procreation, which I'm not criticizing if someone follows that standard. Again, there's no one single way of dealing with this. But I'm mentioning this idea of sometimes people get uh, discouraged by just feeling, oh, I cannot follow this. That means I cannot be a devotee. And that, that's not like that. Bhakti is independent, as you mentioned. And the no illicit sex principle is not so much about no's. No, it's not about no meat eating, no intoxication, no this, because that's very negative oriented. What do you do? I do not do this and I do not do that. And I do not. That's what my life is about. Not doing things. No, the actual, <laughs> the actual principles are positive, no, like purity and austerity and compassion. So the no illicit sex principle is about being pure and not only about being pure, but being as pure as you can. And, and that takes so many, so many forms. And uh, regarding the idea of Illicit sex is only sexual activity. Uh, I mean, illicit sex means whatever activity you have apart from procreation. I will say that that's not necessarily sustainable, basically, to be honest, for most. And, and that's not prescribing Shastra in one sense, that particular idea. Although I know that some Acharyas have said that, but also have said different things to different people. <laughs> Someone may say, but Prabhupada said this, but also he said something else to another devotee. So there's this Desha Kalapatra consideration, but the other day I was reading this quote from Hari Bhakti Vilas, 1173, for those who doubt about the quote, <laughs> and it says, let me read it, an intelligent person must engage in sex with one's spouse during the prescribed time of the month. Such sex is also allowed at proper times when the spouse desires it. So my point is, or Srila Prabhupada in Bhagavatam 7118, he describes Brahmacharya, interestingly, as continence, of course, but also abstaining from misuse of one's salmon. And he clar clarifies, not indulging in sex with woman other than one's wife. And, and similarly, Bhakti Nautakur in, in, in his Bhakti Alok or in Sajan Toshan, he will emphasize not indulging in sex with other people apart from one's wife. So I will say that the main point here is there is place for sexual expression uh, in, one, in, in a committed relationship, basically. Again, I'm not here proposing just have as much sex as you can with whatever you meet on your path. That's not healthy. I mean, we agree with that. I mean, we are not promoting such a thing. But as I mentioned before, there should be some in-between point between 
procreative sex and sexual exploitation, carnal exploitation, and that could be expressing sexuality as a byproduct of, of already built uh, intimacy and trust and connection in the context of the committed relationship. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I wanted just to mention a few words in that connection, since I know it's a big issue for many devotees regarding the, the four regulative principles and and how many, yeah, or feel discouraged because they cannot follow them as they think they should be followed, or some even worse end up saying that they are following all the things, well, actually they, they are not. So they develop some scar for hypocrisy and, and, and dualism and cheating, in self-cheating basically, which is not healthy at all. What do you think, Brother Mal? Yes, this uh, also brings up other interesting topics. And I think just to connect to what you were saying just now, um, it is a big issue for many within, but also without our societies. And like you're saying, many people ultimately decide not to join you know, the Christian conscious movement because they just cannot cope with this very rigid approach to sexuality and for them it would be artificial suppression um you know in, in many regards and so they don't want to cope with that and others like you are saying they they then engage in artificial suppression but you know like we're a preaching mission for for most of us you know that we, we came from iskon bodhiyama it's it's clear that a big part of, of our sadhana or our spiritual activities is to share the wonderful glories of, of Radha Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with others and inspire them. And it's so hard to do that when you have people who really are interested in the topic, but just at that one um, regulated principle, they, they cannot follow and then they decide not to not to join. Otherwise, they would be completely okay with it it's it's just that one principle where really they they don't see makes sense to them also spiritually right not just not just materially but for them they just they want to have a, a, a more eros friendly approach on a spiritual level also and integrate integrative approach to sexuality to human sexuality not just in terms of procreation but also in terms of intimacy between partners and they want to see that I want to celebrate that also as, a, as an expression of, of the divine energy that is not to be tabwise or is not to, you know, be um, feeling, you know, you, you shouldn't be ashamed about it. Because like you're saying, Maharaj, it's really true. And I asked different people in the Gridhasa communities and one of one, one preacher out there, I'm not going to mention his name, but he actually told me, at least 95% of, of the, the householders, they, they do not follow this just for procreation rule. And they feel very, very guilty about it. Mm. But it, it's very clear that almost no one is able to follow that rule. And so then, of course, that also brings with it a lot of hypocrisy for those who are then pretending, oh, okay, it's, it's all good for us, it works. Because they also don't want to feel bad and put down by others, you know, they don't want to be stigmatized. And and not just in the householder, you know, ashram, but also in the brahmachari ashram, there's so much hypocrisy going on 
And uh, seeing that was also one of the many, many reasons why I changed ashrams. It was just not making sense to me in, in so many ways. Like, I mean, I could tell you so many stories, but there are actually leaders, spiritual leaders, right? Who are um, having sexual relationship with, with, with others or, or with their students or what, what, whatever, secretly. And it's just so much hypocrisy and everyone knows that this is going on. But especially in, in, in here, in where I live in, in India, it's, a, it's become, unfortunately, a very common unwritten rule in, in the householder um, ashram is do whatever you want, but just don't get caught. You know, because if you get caught, it's bad news for the church, for the temple, for, you know, the institution. So we don't want that, but we know it doesn't work for most people. It's artificial suppression all the way. And so you have to, you know, you have to live with it somehow, but just don't let it spill out in the public sphere. So there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. So you have basically two choices if you're in the, in the brahmacharya ashram, for most people, right? For those who are not able to sublimate successfully, which is the <laughs> great promise that we've all been given, but doesn't work for most. So there's these two choices of either I just forcibly suppress and somehow make that work or try to make that work, or I engage secretly and, and uh, then I have to, of course, hide that. And that comes a lot with a lot of guilt, you know, a lot of feelings of guilt and suppression and secrecy and hypocrisy. Hmm. So unfortunately, yeah, that, that hypocrisy is there in, in both the ashrams. And it's not just a minor part of devotees. It's the larger majority. And hmm. that's very sad. And, and that needs to change. Yeah, yeah. Here, here. I, rem I recall. I would like to show one verse that I quoted in my book from Chaitanya Charitamrita, and in that verse it says like this: It says, "A person who knows things as they are and still does not bear witness becomes involved in sinful activities." No? So again, this is the same principle, and that's already in Shastra for us to know that this is not supported actually by by our tradition to know that some things are going on and not do anything about it. E even I remember we were talking with a friend some time ago and we were saying, because I remember I sh we were talking about the particular situation of abuse and someone told me, well, that was between that person and that person, the abuser and the abused. So like I had nothing to do. It was between you two, something like that, those two. And it's like if, like, if I'm in a room and I know in the next room someone is raping a child, I cannot say, and that's between them too. I have nothing to do. No, I become involved by the very fact of becoming, being aware of that. That has, that's human responsibility. And, and maybe even, let's say that the person who is raping, and I'm not defending that person, but maybe that person is, has been raped himself and due to unresolved trauma ends up raping others, which is horrible, I'm saying. But even in, in one sense, it may be worse for the other person who has not that trauma and knows that the raping is going on and is saying nothing, <laughs> yeah. to put it in some, in some way. No? Uh, but yeah, I totally agree that, that in one way for not acknowledging these situations, we are basically invisibly, but giving in between the lines this message that you can be a hypocrite. And actually, it's okay. And not only it's okay, but it's required 
to be part of the movement, basically. Unconsciously, of course, nobody's saying that directly <laughs> because we are supposed to go against cheating. No? That's the very message of the Bhagavatam, Dharma Praedo Kaitavo, no? totally rejecting all forms of cheating, basically. So it's kind of ironic how in the name of a, a whole tradition which revolves around the Bhagavad, which revolves around this particular verse, it's Varstunir Deshloka, which rejects all forms of hypocrisy. Many times we end up like institutionalizing hypocrisy, basically, in the way of, okay, regarding this situation, fake it till you make it, or as you mentioned, hide it so you are not caught. Like if Krishna wouldn't be in one's heart, like if we are not very bearing <laughs> witness to an omnipresent absolute. No? So that takes away the whole uh, mystical presence of God in our lives, our, the, the whole like transparency in our connection to him. Uh, and it's interesting because, again, we connected how many times we cannot, we don't address the sexual issues due to what they imply ultimately in terms of being naked, being vulnerable, being transparent. And not addressing them ends up reinforcing that same principle where we foster hypocrisy, denial, covering up, and we may end up like like Brenda Sundar is saying, no, like she says, like well, basically we are propagating cheating and hypocrisy instead instead of facing reality courageously. So so basically, it's the yeah, because that happens again in every tradition. We are not here to smash the Gaudiya Sampradaya or to point to any particular group or person is just uh, a principle that happens everywhere but because that happens everywhere doesn't mean that oh it happens everywhere i remember someone told me at one point well maraj but we are in kali yuga so like saying those things will happen because it's kali yuga and okay i'm not expecting that that, that everyone will change abruptly but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about that either because something is happening and will continue happening in mass doesn't mean that a few people that f see that, that feel something for that, shouldn't be talking about that. Yes, Maraj, totally agree. And like, you know, it's not like if you compare it with other, you know, principles that are, are being broken or, or that people are not able to uphold, it's just the sheer amount of failure with this one principle that makes it really appear to us people as something that really needs to be looked into much more. Because, okay, meat eating, for example, there, there are maybe some people who fail to, to uphold that principle, but for most, this isn't really a big issue. Gambling, no big deal for most of us, you know? But sexuality has been the number one failure for, for most of us because and here, I want, to, I want to stress also, we started off with a very noble intention in our tradition. If you look at it historically, in our Gaudiya, because Gaudiya history, we think is, is like <laughs> thousands and thousands of years old, yes and no, you know. I mean, Mahaprabhu came just 500 years ago, and, you know, in the West, it started just a few decades ago. It, it's a very, very new tradition in that perspective. A lot of it started with experimenting and then adjusting things later on and so it's not wrong to to see something okay this didn't work let's make some changes that how it has been going on for, for you know quite a while and so when we look at, at the massive sheer amount of, of failure and, and crisis within trying to uphold that 
one principle, it, it's a very urgent thing to, to look into. And um, so when you have the, the you know, the, when you have alternatives to that, then it's, it becomes much more approachable for, for people to deal with, you know? Yeah. So we, like we had this noble starting point where we said, okay, look, you chant the holy name, you follow the principles, you follow all the sadhanas, and you will be able for sure to sublimate the sexual desire. That was the big promise that we were given. But for most of us, it, it, it didn't happen. And I, I talked about this issue with so many very, very advanced senior devotees, and they all pretty much shockingly told me, even for us, it, you know, for most of us, it doesn't work. <laughs> There's always something that's, that's, that, you know, cannot be sublimized, you know, and, and like many, many um, devotees who have been practicing for many, many years, they are forced then to act in either, you know, artificial suppression and deal with all the consequences of that, or then live a very hypocritical way because they don't want to leave the movement and secretly engage and, you know, or not fulfill the only for procreation rule and have a lot of guilt about that. But the point is that, okay, we had this noble onset where we said, okay, let's try. We have faith in, in, our, in our starting point promise that it will work. Mm -hmm. But now we have to look into the issue and say, really, it doesn't work for most of us, right? And mm -hmm. it's not just because we're all operatis, we're all non-operatis, that's another topic. No, no, okay? That's not because we're just all of us or most of us are just all operatis and, you know, Krishna is not allowing us to, to get to, to Namabas where, you know, there, there's much more purification. Even in Namaparat, there's a lot of purification happening. But no, it's, it's, it's something that goes much more deeper to the roots of the problem where I would say this is my personal stance where, you know, we have an all and all over wrong um, approach to sexuality per se. That's just my out of the box perception. Mm -hmm. you know, understanding of, of the whole topic. But like we will probably in, in uh, the later parts or in the future parts of this talk also talk about the historical aspect, you know. There was a time in the Indian societies or, or in the Indian traditions where people were much more Eros friendly, you know. And then it swapped over to Eros unfriendliness. And then within that period of, of Eros unfriendliness, you have then people saying that, okay, let's start this experiment according to what we believe, it should work. But really, um, as we can all witness for most of us, it, it doesn't work, right? mm -hmm. That's my humble perception of it. And, and I share that with so many other devotees yeah. I have interactions with in this topic. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I agree with your point. I mean, we, if the statistics are there, if the numbers are there. <laughs> We should do something about it, not, not, not merely push on, on a particular way of addressing. And I don't think that whatever we are talking here is we are watering down the purest, noblest idea and, and making it just for the sake of making it accessible so people don't leave and don't feel so bad about themselves. I don't feel it's, it, it, it's that type of degradation of the highest thing, but actually a compassionate and, and deep address of, of a principle that has too many 
facets. Again, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's a complex topic. It's not just uh, like monochromatic thing. Only in this way, that's the only way. Nastieva, nastieva, nastieva. There is no other way, no other way, no other way. So I think since you touch upon this idea of the historical unfolding of this of, of sexuality in, in, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism and how Gaudiya Vaishnavism is in one sense very ancient yeah. if you want to connect it with the Vedas and so on, but at the same time, in terms of geological time, our tradition has been existing for one nanosecond. <laughs> so, so I think it's important to put all those, so, so to say, social historical considerations on the scale and to see how how this whole conception has been unfolding and will continue unfolding and, and which particular situation we are at present, which at least in my humble opinion, not humble, but it's a way of saying, no, right? <laughs> but in our tradition, there is a very deep overemphasis and we have over-idealized the monastic order, so to say. And I'm sure you will mention, we will share a few insights to us about how that ended up happening. But we are in a moment that in, in, in many situations, the, the suffering, so to say, is just synonymous for some with being a superhero, so to say. And, and whatever is not that is perverse or is inferior or is bad. And, and, and that's delicate because, that, I mean, I'm a sannyasi and that happens to me a lot. People just because I'm a sannyasi think that just because of that, I'm more advanced. Just because of that, I'm a pure devotee. Just because of that, they have to give me donation, whatever. <laughs> just because of that, I'm, I'm, I'm more advanced than them. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and, and, and I'm feeling sometimes... Of course, I understand many people need to, to, to many people just engage in idolatry, basically. <laughs> and that's a, a comfort zone uh, to put someone on the pedestal and just you tell me what to do and, and, and I just follow you and everything is solved. That's a very simplistic way of, of addressing reality. But, but many times I feel when people over-idealize you, it's, they are kind of dehumanizing you. I mean, over-idealizing a person is a dehumanization of the person. And monks are, are not superheroes necessarily. A monk is an, a human being like any other person and devotees. Of course, there may be extraordinary monks as there may be extraordinary grihastas. But I think it's important to, to kind of establish that as well in, in, in its proper context because we have this overemphasis on monasticism or the idea that uh, at some point you have to renounce your family life to become a sannyasi. That's higher. And a sannyasi is necessarily higher than a family life person. Well, there are hundreds of quotes. I won't torture you today with that. But in the scriptures, I compile a few and put them in my book about how you can attain perfection uh, in, in household life as a family person. And not only how you can attain perfection in household life, but the ultimate perfection for us will be household life. In Golok Brindava, nobody will be a brahmachari or a sannyasi. <laughs> So household life, family life is our eternal prospect. So if at present you are not being very friendly with that idea of being a family, if you develop a, a kind of rejection towards family life, how you will end up in eternal family life? No? Or if you develop a rejection toward sexuality in all its forms, how you will end up in the lila where Radha and Krishna are engaging in sex life on a daily basis and not for procreation. <laughs> And the, and the service, the main service for most of them will be revolving that, around that particular activity. So anyhow, some thoughts in that connection. But yeah, if, if you would like, Radha Mava, it will be interesting if, if we 
touch upon. Well, the article you wrote recently and, and some of the history behind the, the present situation we find in us go just now in our society in relation to, to sexuality and so on. Yes, thank you, Maraj. So there's a lot of issues. Again, it's a very complex topic that have to be talked about in this relation as well. And, you know, we're already in more than an hour now in this podcast, so we won't be able to cover everything. But, you know, you probably will link the article that I wrote recently about endosynthesis in the end or whenever you feel like it. And their devotees can also get more background information about what I'm just going to summarize here right now. Because it's, it's really more complex than what we're able to, to talk about now. But before I start, I want to emphasize that when we look at history, and there's a reason also why, you know, some Acharyas have uh, cautioned us not to look into Indian history too much, because it's really, it can be really confusing for a right reason. Because suddenly you see that, oh, you know, if you look into earlier scriptures, it you know, the, the entire philosophy that we, that we have is huge, uh, very deep, um, you know, very, very much um, evolved philosophy right now, but that's completely missing there. You have a much more archaic, or you may call it, call it primitive approach to, to religion, and it seems like, oh, it's, it's not really a descending thing that we're being taught. You know, it, there's so many contradictions that you have to face then, mm. but... So before we enter that topic of historic approach, why I even venture into that is not to confuse devotees or you know, to, to give them reasons to criticize the tradition, whatever, nothing like that. But because for me personally, it's been a huge eye-opener. That's why I share this approach with others. And I think many, many people will benefit greatly from it. And that there's a great lack of looking into the historical approach in more detail. So I'm not saying I'm doing this in a perfect way, but I want to open up the, you know, the, the approach. Yeah. yeah. Radhamada, the article you wrote can be found in your website, Nectar Pot? Yeah, that's right. We basically... Okay. Sharing the, li the link for those yes. who will like the article, Hindu Synthesis, that's the title? Yes, under articles, you know. Okay. There is a menu, and in the menu you go to articles, and then it's the top one because right now it's the latest article so okay. later you can scroll down and find it. okay thank you thank you yes so sh share with us some of the ideas main ideas that you have mentioned there just to to give us a trailer yes. of that of what will happen in, yes. in the article and what will happen in your conference in a few weeks in the Bi progressive Vaishnavism conference yes right in the in that podcast um, in that conference talk it, it will be much more structured and ordered than here we're having more of a free flow talk right now, which I also very much appreciate. Both formats are, are, are very much valuable. Hmm. And so in regards to history, before we enter this, because now the audience here is clearly Gaudiya Vaishnavism Gaudis, that article, by the way, was written for a more broader audience. You know, those people basically who already know something about Indian traditions Mm -hmm. and uh, they are interested on this topic of synthesis reform, how the Shramanas and the Brahmanas, they, count, you know, they interact with each other. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. So, But before we do that, it makes mm -hmm. sense for devotees to understand that if things were not there in history, it doesn't mean that they are not eternal. That's not what you know, um, looking at history means. For example, to give you a clear example, 
the deities of Radharani came in very, very late. You know, actually, Janavama, she, you know, brought the deities from Orissa and established them personally in many temples. And it, it had to, uh, you know, go over the stage, so to say, with a lot of debate. There was a lot of debate. Why? Why do we need Radharani deities for? Was something incomplete before? Yes, then why? You know, so <laughs> that was just, you know, less than 500 years ago. So if, similarly, if you look into history, when we now talk about certain dynamics that were there back in time, it doesn't mean that, you know, there is no eternal aspects of that, you know. It seems now when we talk about history that this is a complete mundane approach to reality, but it isn't really because things can manifest at a certain time in history and at the same time be completely transcendental. To give you an example, also from Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishna Kaviratya Swami, he mentions how when Krishna goes from one universe to another, the entire spectrum of his divine pastimes manifests in that other um, universe in sequence, in time sequence. And so basically you have from one universe to the next, you have a free flow of continuation of all these divine pastimes. And if you look at it from that higher perspective, it's completely eternal and transcendental. But then, you know, if you're in it, historically speaking, it happens at one point, and it seems that before Krishna, you know, there's a build-up, and after Krishna, there's separation, and then when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu comes again, there's a build-up. And now when we talk about the material aspects in history, that's the material thing, an earthly thing, not to use the word material, because it's ultimately everything spiritual, but an earthly manifestation of all these spiritual values brings with it the dynamics of time and space, where you have um, an apparent... Um, appearance of certain elements in, in time. And then you have, you have an intermixing of traditions also. And that's what the article talks about mainly, because most of us, <laughs> we're, we're, we're being taught that, oh, we have this very unmixed tradition mm. where things have not much mixed. But if you look at it historically, yes, there was a lot of mixing going on. And if you go back 2,500, 2,700 years in history, that's when the biggest mixing started of different traditions, namely the Brahmana and the Shramana tradition. That's what the article talks about. And this intermingling is called the Hindu synthesis. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of talk and, and you know, not a lot, a lot of presentations on that. You have to really go through various medias to get to the crux of it. So that's why I wrote that article. But basically what it means is that the Brahmanas they were opposed by the Shramanas 2,700 years ago. That's just before the advent of the word Buddha. And the Shramanas... I'll share the terminology here for those who have, are here, in the, especially the word Shraman for the first time. No? <laughs> yes, right. Most, so most, most of us are... Brahman, but Shraman, yeah. Yeah, most of us know the Brahmanas. Basically, the Vedic culture is, you know, the Brahminical culture. Now the name of the Vedic culture is the Brahmanical culture. Some say Brahminical, Brahmanical, you know, culture. So what we have nowadays is a mixture, actually, of Brahminical and Shraminical cultures. Those are the biggest confluences. I had an epiphany when I was in Deprayag, um, and I saw the confluence of the Bhagirati and the Alakananda River forming the Ganga River there. And it was a very beautiful sight. And... Uh, a big inspiration because I realized that, wow, okay, we're thinking that 
the Ganga is all the same water from mouth to from source to to, to you know the, the mouth, the, the ending, the confluence into the, the ocean. But it's of course a mixture of various um, confluences. So in, in Deepak, you have this beautiful confluence of its biggest contributors at that point. So similarly, if you look at the, the history of the Indian tradition, there's this huge confluence of two traditions that started happening um, 700 years before um, uh, Christ. So what happened there was that the Shramanas, they, they brought in a new dynamics. Like you hear also Jaidev Goswami says it in, in his, um, Dashavatar Shtotram also, how Buddha, he came very mercifully and established Ahimsa to counteract the, the slaughtering of the animals, which is prescribed in, in, in the Vedic scriptures. And he, he, he actually did mention that in this sense. He didn't use the explanations that he used nowadays by the Acharyas. Oh, they did that so that they get a new life. In, you know, in their, in their next life, they get a higher life. But mm -hmm. he very, you know, straightforward says that was mentioned in the Shastra there. And, and they counteracted that, that Insa by establishing principles of Insa. And also they, they um, counteracted the, the fact that during those days, there was a lot of hereditary caste system that suppressed the lower caste from having access to yeah, you know, the tradition, the Brahminical tradition, not just reading the Vedas, but also studying the, the tradition, what to speak of um, fully practicing, you know. Mm. So that's not something that, like sometimes we're being taught that, oh, before it was um, all harmonious. And then in between, some people brought up misconception about what Varnashram really means. And then it started to become diluted and people started to come up with this hereditary case system? No. If you look back in history, it was really, um, for most of history, there was this very strong hereditary case system. And many people's many, many, um, you know, billions or, of course, back in history, you didn't have billions in India. And now you have 1.2, I think, billion. Yeah. You had much less, but still, you know, you're talking about millions of people suffering from the cases not being able to even access what to speak of practice, the tradition. And so the Shramanas um, counter, um, you know, they, 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 um, they went against that. They were mavericks, they were, um, you know, not orthodox, but they were heterodox. And while, while they had this very noble um, idea of bringing Ahimsa and you know, sharing the divine knowledge with everyone, everyone should be able to have access to it and practice, practice the, the Vedic tradition. They also went against uh, Brahmanas in the sense of their being householders, right? Mm -hmm. So the Brahminical tradition, for those of you who don't know, was clearly a householder tradition and renunciation was very much discouraged in the early days, right? In the traditional Vedic days. Why is that so? Just to give a clear, short background is because According to the, the Vedic tradition, the ancient Vedic tradition, not the modern versions of it, you need a son to perform your shrad, you know, so you can you, you get swarga, you, you attain swarga. That's the you know the, the goal set in, in, the, in the Vedic ancient Vedic tradition, and for that you need a son. And you know, for you to have a son, you need at least 
one son because one can die. So people have a lot of children usually in those circumstances to fulfill not just their familiar um, duties, but also their spiritual duties. And so they were completely against renunciation. So the, the shramanas, when they went against that, uh, that system, they also said, okay, we're going to now be renunciates. Okay, not, no, more, no more family life because with family life, there comes so much corruption and all the slaughtering of poor animals and you know, monopolizing religion. So they went to the other extreme, in a sense, and said, okay, mm. better not to be bothered with family life at all. And that's how, you know, those days that the, 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 the monistic tradition, they were not organized, okay, because the shramanas were not organized at that time. But they started, they had their early roots there, because after that, they all became organized. And the huge tendency in India for monism that you were mentioning, or, or the overemphasis in your words on the monastic order started that time with the Shramana movement, because you can imagine it was like a tsunami, a revolutionary tsunami sweeping across India. After that tsunami, suddenly everyone was renunciation centric. You know, it was a huge revolution. Before that, if you look into history, unbiased, of course, without any bias, there was very, very clear focus on, on, on householder life and renunciation was not an option. Unless you have a, a, uh, a chart, you know, where for you it's impossible or, you know, unless you have a physical disability to, to have children, it was not an option. And, and so... After it, that, it, it yes. reminds me just just a little, not joke, but it reminds me when I once I did a chart for myself. I don't want to claim my Adi card to renunciation or anything, but I, I was in India and one devotee did me a chart. Say, Maharaj, you have Venus. Venus is the planet of romance. So you have Venus in the worst possible position. Okay. So you have the perfect chart for a sannyasi. <laughs> <laughs> so that re yes. remind me of what you are mentioning, no? Like like yes. that, those yes, were the sure. considerations. Yes, right. So, you know, those days it, it was regarded as, as a disadvantage. Now in, in these days we're, we're looking at it and we're saying, oh, great, you know, you, it's easier for you to renounce. But those days, if you look at it uh, without any bias, then it was very clear. And by the way, there are still traces of that old stock of Brahminical culture. For example, the Mahabharata, if you look at what the Mahabharata says about uh, renunciation, their stance renunciation very clear that the householder ashram is the best ashram and they argue with, with in many ways for that. So we may think that why why suddenly one scripture is not having the normal stance because our normal now is ha it happened after the Hindu synthesis where the shramanas brought in that huge um, renunciation spirit so why is the Mahabharata against it? Well, it's very simple because the Mahabharata takes the older spirit and continues the, the older spirit of, uh, you know, householder centrism or, or family centrism. Whereas what we have nowadays in, in our most of Indian traditions is clearly renunciation centric because it, it happened after the synthesis where so much, by the way, the Brahmanas, what they did when... <laughs> When, when, when they were, in, you know, quote-unquote, attacked by the shramanas and they lost so many of their sons to the shramana cult, 
they then incorporate the Shramana values. So they incorporated the, the renunciation values in, into their ethos. And that's how it got into the tradition. You know, it wasn't just forced on them, but they, they, they themselves incorporated them in, in the hope that they then will not lose their sons, more and more sons to the Brahmanas. And that was success, in quote, unquote. They didn't lose more of the quote, because then they could say, okay, at least, you know, we have children for some time and then you can renounce. You know, those days it was like that. It, it, there was no much emphasis on the, the premier, um, you know, the, the 24, the 25 years, in the, you know, before um, of, of being being celibate. That was that was student ashram. And then after that, you're supposed to marry, <laughs> to, yeah. to have children. And and so, yeah, if, if you look at it from a historical perspective, you can you can see that really the material reason of why we are now so much emphasizing renunciation and that includes of course our approach to sexuality is because the shramanas went from the one extreme to the other extreme and now the hindu synthesis you, you can read more about this in the article really it's still continuing and it means to now synthesize these two polarized approach into something that makes more sense you know, for example, Lord Buddha, just to give you one example, he didn't remain a Shramana. He started off as a Shramana. He, he renounced his Vedic um, life as a prince, as a Kshatriya prince, and became a, a, a Shramana in the Pali language that's called Tamana, for those who are averse with, you know, in, with the, so sorry, for, for those who are um, well-versed in the, in the, in the Buddhist scriptures, because most mm -hmm. of them are in Pali, They're, they don't say Shramana, but they say Samana. He became a Samana. And then he chose the middle way after his enlightenment. He said, really what makes sense is to have a middle way between the extreme renunci renunciation mm -hmm. approach of the Shramanas and the, what he, you know, you know the, the Buddhists usually look at the, the Brahmanas in, in more negative, of negative terms because they, mm -hmm. they, they highlight the negative aspects of corruption. So, so mundane approach to family life. So he said that the spiritual approach, <clears throat> the golden middle, I think he called it the, the middle of the, the golden middle path or something. Mm, the middle that, path, that makes yeah. Sense. The middle path, yeah. yeah. So, so similarly, the Hindu synthesis is continuing and we are part of that. It's not that it stops somewhere and doesn't mm. continue. If we don't do it internally, it will continue externally and people will seek shelter elsewhere than in, in our tradition, but the synthesis will continue. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Great. I, I was thinking a few points, if I may, very interesting points. And again, the, the role of history, I try to also emphasize that in my book, that we shouldn't like downplay secular disciplines like history, sociology, anthropology, like, oh, that's not transcendental, that's mundane, we just deal with revelation, but revelation plays itself out in the context of history so it's important like like Brenda Sundar is saying that no she's saying like just because something isn't historical doesn't mean it isn't eternal and just because something is historical doesn't mean it's eternal so all those things have to be considered also I was thinking as, I, as we talked in some of the threads when you published your article <laughs> that something is eternal doesn't mean that it's always the same which is also it's another podcast in itself, but but I've seen that many many practitioners have this idea of eternal as always the same as never evolving, 
And when I mentioned there is the possibility of God evolving, of Krishna becoming more Krishna in the sense he's already perfect and complete, but he can become always more perfect, more beautiful, more complete. And in fact, that's what Shastra says. So Krishna becomes more beautiful at every moment and the love of the devotees increase at every moment. So there is an evolution in eternality. That's my point. So when we talk about revelation or the eternal platform, doesn't mean it's always the same. So there is some unfolding of that. And somehow that eternal unfolding can become also reflected or manifest throughout human history. So that, that on one side, but also I was thinking when you were talking about Brahmanas and, and Sramanas, how originally the Sramanas like, take a, took a distance from the Brahmanas because the Brahmanas somehow ended up corrupt, corrupting themselves and, and ending up monopolizing religion. But so, somehow how that extreme result of that is that the, many of the Sramanas or many of the renunciants end up doing the exact same thing they rejected originally. <laughs> No, <laughs> because that happened. Yeah. And, and not many of the present-day sannyasis and on, on all on all things like that are, are end up monopolizing the whole thing. Lots of corruption, as we talked before. Lots of hypocrisy, and that reminds me of Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta establishing the sannyas ashram to deal with some of the deviation with some babajis at the time. But many times we talk. Well, maybe I should leave now the Sanyas Ashram because there are so many deviations in the name of Sanyas Ashram. Maybe we should bring Babaji Besh back or something to that effect. Because again, we've seen times this history tends to repeat itself. No? So some groups takes a distance because of some reason, but that same group ends up doing the same thing or sometimes even worse. <laughs> so I appreciate that that point. I was thinking about that point. And, and, and I appreciate the point of the need for a synthesis, so to say, and, and, and we are in particular in that particular chapter, I will say now, and that notion of synthesis for me goes hand by hand with the idea of integration, uh, and Bhakti is all about integration, no? the Srimad Bhagavatam and saying, Nanir Atishakto Bhakti Yoga Susidina, to attain perfection in Bhakti, you cannot be too attached, you cannot be too detached, you have to tread the middle path, so to say, because if you overemphasize uh, yeah, Ex uh, material stuff that ends up being karma. If you overemphasize renunciation, that ends up being jnana. And bhakti is not either of both. I mean, our bhakti is jnana, karma, adi, and abritam. And it's interesting because many times devotees dismiss that foundational description of bhakti and end up emphasizing so much uh, one thing or the other, what bhakti is, again, a middle path, is a synthesis, is an improper integration. And, and I know we have a, quite a problem with that. We have a problem with threading a middle path, with, thread, with coexisting with nuance, and we tend to go to, to extremes. So, yeah, I was, I was thinking about those things, how our bhakti path has to do with integration, has to do with the synthesis you are talking about as well. Yes, yeah, so if you look at it historically, this integration in in the in the Buddhist example, they have found their middle way, and I don't know much about that. But for in this topic of sexualities, I think many devotees would agree that we still haven't found our middle way. It's very very one-sided approach to sexuality. It may work for the renunciate, according to my understanding i've been in the renunciate ashram for 17 years it doesn't work for most renunciates as well and and so we really haven't found that that 
proper middle path where bhakti can blossom fully, you know, because that's what it's all about. We, we want to be in, in the middle. We want to have the perfect synthesis so bhakti can fully blossom. And we don't have to, you know, use that energy that we want to devote to, to bhakti for other things. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah. if you look yeah. at it historically, I find it very eye-opening because there was a time in India, and many people don't know that, where renunciation was was really not a topic for for most people and it was even looked down upon and i'm not saying that this is the solution but um, during those days there are always pros and cons during those days there was a very eros friendly approach to reality you have the witnesses of that nowadays um, the silent witnesses in the in the backdrop of of a lot of erotophobia in India are still there in the forms of the temples of Kajurao, for example, with the erotic sculptures. You have the Kama Sutra. You know, yeah. you have all, all these inter- very, very... Very interesting yeah. that Kama Sutra was authored by a brahmachari also. That's a very interesting point. I don't know if you did, if you yes. did know that, but the, the author of the yes. Brahm- Kama Sutra is a brahmachari. So that's yes. an interesting and, and case. It's also, it's, also in, it's also interesting... Uh, to know that because many devotees may be like, yeah, but that's, uh, you know, the, the at, at least the lower aspect of spirituality, or they may even call it mundane at the mundane scripture. No, it's part of our Shastras. And even the Goswamis, they refer, uh, they make the references to, to, to the, the Kama Sutras at certain points. So they actually, even our Goswamis, they accept that as a spiritual authority. So there is a place for that culture. And but how does that make sense, right? If we are so much focused on, on, on suppression or renunciation, whatever you want to call it, well, it makes sense because before in those times, there was much more emphasis on householder life and people had no problem at all with normal human sexuality. With normal human sexuality, I mean, not just pro, uh, pro uh, not just, uh, pre, um, you know. Procreative. Uh, procreative sexuality. But I mean, I mean, you know, the sexuality that most people engage in on this planet. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was absolutely no issue with it. And so the eye-opening part of looking at history is that, you know, it, you don't have to reinvent the wheel if you're looking into an Eros-friendly culture based on Indian traditions. That's a good plus point that we have as Indian traditions. We can revert the old tradition, not making the same mistakes again, of course, that we did those days, like monopolizing religion, mm-hmm. you know, whatnot, you know, the, all the wrong things that of those, those early days, you know, the animal sacrifices, whatnot. Without those, of course, but we can revert to the, the positive aspects of those early days, for example, Eros friendliness. And this is really um, where it's been a very eye-opening experience for me looking at history. And because, for example, just to give you some context of what's happening nowadays, um, devotees who are not finding Eros friendly approaches in within the Gaudiya circles, they look at other circles, for example, Neo Chandra, and that really, on one side, it's it's not really rooted into the tantric traditions, but nowadays, the the tantric tradition, even the classical tantric tradition, very much. Um, you know, overlaps with the, the Neo-Tantra uh, tradition, the, the, the newer uh, 
neo-tantra communities in the sense that they also become very much eros friendly which really isn't the case when you when you look at the classical tantric scriptures they're not at all eros friendly as one may think you know mm. that's a whole other topic but they're because they come from the shramana fold tantra most of or let's say tantra was you know um not just born in the Shramana fold, but it, it had one of their big origins in the Shramana fold. And that's why they're actually um, not really body positive, but they're actually renunciation centric, although they do have householder traditions. But um, the point is that actually the, the tantric traditions, they, they are not really in, a, in, their, in their essence, in their traditional culture, not really eros friendly. Whereas in the earlier Indian traditions or Vedic traditions, whatever you want to call that, you have very much tradition of, of Eros friendliness established. Mm -hmm. yeah? So we can link, and that's really eye-opening for me, and I think for many people who are looking to it, we can link to our earlier roots of Eros friendliness without having to go outside the boundaries of our tradition. Mm -hmm. We can revert to those you know, approaches, philosophies, and we don't have to feel guilty in the sense that, oh man, I, I now have to, you know, reinvent the wheel or make a huge revolution or, you know, reform in the sense that I'm bringing up something completely new or making a new speculation altogether. But there has been already these approaches in, in our ancient roots of, of our tradition. Yeah. Thank you so much, Radha Prabhu. We are almost getting close to the wrapping up of, of the episodes, a few words about that. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, as I mentioned originally, this is a space to open up for conversation. Here we are not trying to impose any uh, ultimate conclusion, and, and that's the, the, the last word on the topic, but just bringing up to the table, naming, framing a few situations that need to, to be properly addressed. And again, for me, it's very important, not only for those who are in a in a marriage state or in a couple situation, but even for monastics to know what to do with this such a powerful energy, which is the sexual energy, which again, as we described today, according even to Shastra, this is a principle which is at the very backdrop of, of material creation. And, and not only a material creation, but it's quite connected to the to transcendence, especially our goal, the idea of transcendence. So how to deal with this, how to understand our present situation as, as a community in whatever chapter we may be in and how to address you know, with honesty, with integrity, uh, the present chapter we're in and address sexuality again in, in a healthy way, in a normalized way, uh, not in a superficial way, because also sometimes, again, in the name of sexuality, there may be also lots of uh, unresolved trauma. I've seen cases of eroticized trauma, so to say, I don't know, to give an example, there's maybe guys who know who like to watch sadomasochistic masochistic porn, so to say, and, and, and maybe they end up doing that because as a child, that guy was severely beaten daily by her mother, by his mother, and that was the only touch he got from her. So he didn't resolve the trauma, and that translates as this particular addiction. So my point is, or, or expression of sexuality, and, and our point here is, we, we should understand all these different nuances and complexities, and this, again, a very huge topic we are just doing a brief kickstart here so we can continue the conversation among each other privately as a group, as a community. 
But the idea was just at least to bring it to the table. That will be the spirit of this whole free radical podcast, trying to get together with, with friends, with brothers, with sisters, and, and start conversation, bring together to the table topics that we feel that they are relevant for our particular situation in the Gaudiya community. So I, I appreciate Radha Madhava Prabhu's presence for that and all of you for sharing your commentaries. I don't know, Radha Madhava, if you would like to share any final thoughts, some concluding words that you may like to present today before we conclude. Yes, so there's a lot more to be said on this topic. And like you were just now mentioning, uh, example of you know how people can get a, a wrong understanding of sexuality because of trauma. Basically it's more important to tell the people positively what to do than to tell them negatively what not to do. Mm-hmm. It's always like that in, in, in every you know other topic as well. So the same thing applies to spiritual sexuality, holistic sexuality, whatever you want to call it, radical sexuality in your framework of your book. The exact same thing applies here. So all of us need to ask ourselves, okay, how do I approach sexuality in a pure way, in a spiritual way that makes sense for me? Can I just have to approach it through artificial suppression, with feelings of guilt and shame? Because those are really destructive feelings that that can derail person, people, spiritually, psychology, materials, whatever you you know you want to call it, but they can derail people. And they, they eat from, from our energy field in, in many ways that you know shouldn't be there that, in that way. So you have to find your own positive approach to it. You know, I found my way, others have found their their ways. And and that's what I want to encourage people really uh, to do in a positive way. Because if you look at history, it's been a huge synthesis. It's not all black and white, it was it wasn't always the way uh, that we are you know practicing it now it's, it's a huge synthesis it's a huge experimenting and so if something doesn't work you have to start experimenting and make it work for you the highest principle is you know accept all the things uh, in bhakti is, is that accept all the things that bring you closer to bhakti and reject all the things that bring you further away from it so within that ultimate principle you have to find your way how it makes sense to you so that like you were saying before that you can truly belong and you don't have to feel that I have to fit into somewhere artificially yeah. that belonging should be there to come back to, to your book that is really really important and for that you have to sometimes be creative mm-hmm. <laughs> and the sexual energy is the creative energy so that creative energy requires a creative approach Thank you so much, Ramad Prabhu. And one more time, I would like to share the link to Radhamadav's website for those who would like to get to know more about him, about the article on Hindu synthesis he recently wrote in this connection, nectarpot.com, or and also a new section that he added, nectarpot.com slash eros in that connection. And also, interestingly, since you concluded on this note, and okay, we need to to find a way of practicing bhakti in a way that is relevant to us and relatable to us and be creative in, in our own experience of that, which for me is a very crucial aspect of what I choose to call radical personalism. Uh, I would like to conclude sharing also a few words about our next uh, guest for next week. And next week will be 
in this case, uh, Thursday, because on the next Saturday I will be engaging in a retreat, so I won't be available. So next Thursday at 10 a.m. EDT time, I will be inviting Jai Jagannath Prabhu, another dear friend of mine. And the title of our podcast will be The Need for Crafting Our Own Version of Bhakti. Hmm. So with this, of course, we won't be speaking about you can create your own speculated notion of a spiritual life, but there is the need for uh, creating an individualized experience, having an individualized experience of bhakti, because bhakti ultimately is your own relationship with Bhagavan. So it has to be unique. It has to be individualized. And as the scriptures say, in one way or another, try to always think of Krishna. So in one way or another means you have to be crafty enough as to know how to, uh, yeah, create your own version of bhakti in the sense of develop your own personalized relationship with, with Sri Krishna. Mm-hmm. So that will be <clears throat> our next episode, episode number two, which will be next, this coming Thursday, again at 10 a.m. I will be sharing the flyer in these days, EDT time. So one more time, I, I thank you all of you for your comments. Sorry we were not able to address them all but we will try our best next time as well and thank you so much Radha Madha Prabhu for your presence and see you in our next episode of the Free Radical Podcast Thank you Maharaj and thank you everyone who's joined it's been a great pleasure to be here with you Thank you